Welcome to the Atheist Podcast. I'm Aaron, And I'm Kelly. Atheist is where we will explore American cultural trends through the lenses of a devout theist and a devout atheist. We will discuss the messiness of being human, the latest in social science, psychology, and American culture, and what any of it has to do with Homo sapiens' longtime preoccupation with religion. We are thrilled to have Oliver Berkman joining us on the podcast today, the renowned author and journalist known for his insightful perspectives on happiness, productivity, and the human condition. As a journalist, Berkman wrote a weekly column for The Guardian called This Column Will Change Your Life for over a decade. His unique approach to writing combines philosophical inquiry, psychological research, and the personal and personal experiences to offer readers a fresh perspective on navigating the complexities of modern life. His books include The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, where Berkman challenges conventional wisdom and helps readers understand that it is our relentless pursuit of happiness that is in fact making us miserable, and that there is a different path to deep contentment, which involves embracing failure, pessimism, insecurity, and uncertainty, the very things we spend our lives trying to avoid. His latest work, which is now out in paperback, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, offers a fresh perspective on our finitude and how to derive deep meaning from the limited time we have on this planet. The book challenges the modern culture of trying to get everything done and encourages us to recognize that this race is not only futile, it is simply a false story that we are telling ourselves, and it is within our power to choose differently. Berkman is an author that inspires his readers, like Kelly and I, to engage in introspection and personal growth and invites all of us to reconsider our assumptions about happiness, success, and the pursuit of a more fulfilling existence. Thank you, Oliver, for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, and thanks for that uh, great introduction. Well, we are huge fangirls, and <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing how excited we are to have you to talk to. And I just said to Aaron before we got on, I was like, if you had like told us six months ago, you know, when we were like sitting around drinking beer and talking about your book, that we would be sitting interviewing you, we'd be a little. Uh, so. Um, I, the reality can only disappoint. I'm sure. <laughs> well, well, we 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 beg to differ. Um, so I wanted to start with a question about kind of the the origin story for this book for four thousand weeks. Um, I heard somebody say the other day uh, about an idea that they were chewing on that this is an idea I've been thinking about for like five or 10 years. And mm -hmm. we don't really hear people say things like that today. Mm -hmm. People are kind of like, you know, regurgitating information pretty quickly. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love so much about your book is it feels like the culmination of a lot of deep thinking over several years. Um, and so it doesn't come off as a pop psychology book. It really comes off as a wisdom book. Um, so, so I was wondering... <laughs> I was wondering if there was a moment that was precipitous um, in kind of sending you in this direction of looking at your relationship to time. Yeah, it's a great question. And it sort of brings up all sorts of uh, somewhat interesting points about this, how creativity works, doesn't it? Because I, my, my experience with writing always is that um, I... I sort of get an intellectual grasp of something that I want to talk about 
almost before it's been reached its full fruition as some sort of life experience to have, right? So, mm-hmm. or that you know, it takes a lot longer to sort of live into the kind of insights that you get from that from that process. I suppose this is a convoluted way of saying that on some level, uh, I had, I think, been interested in and struggling with the question of time and how to feel like I was doing what I ought to be doing with my time and, and all the rest of it for a very uh, long time for you know certainly my sort of you know basically all my life as a teenager through to adulthood and, mm-hmm. and beyond then then what happened was I sort of I started I, when I when I, you know there's a very sort of um uh sort of down to earth level of this which is you want to write a book you look at the patterns that have been emerging I looked at the patterns that have been emerging in the, the columns I've been writing and I and I saw that uh you know the ones that really compelled me were all about time and limitation and the idea of embracing limitation mm-hmm. uh, then I sort of put together the book proposal and 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 sold the book proposal like then in a in a way that I didn't really know was going to uh, happen when I first came up with the book proposal I, in short order, became uh, uh, a uh, father, and mm. um, then the pandemic happened, and all these kind of um, major things that really made me understand the nature of the the of struggles with time um, happened after that. So I, what I'm trying to say is that it, it's it's almost sort of spooky to me in a way, the mm. way that we sort of get these kind of intimations of of what's important and then suddenly your life demonstrates oh yes they're really they're really important so I don't know if that was a, a precipitating moment I certainly there's also sort of moments of crisis when I was like okay my attitude to time is not working out for me and I need a new one and I write in the book about you know sitting on a park bench in uh Prospect Park here in Brooklyn where I'm speaking to you from now and uh trying to very normal thing for me then sort of anxiously trying to figure out how I was going to make all my I was going to get all the things done that I felt I had to get done by the end of that week and just suddenly being struck by the thought like oh it's impossible oh, it can't <laughs> be done. I'm just trying to do something impossible right. and experiencing the liberation of that insight I think maybe that was a precipitating moment yeah a long answer but there you go hopefully that's not the one no that's a good one how how is the the birth of your child um changed your relationship to time well I don't think it I don't think I have uh, it's not in a particularly original sense, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, you you, um, you have some vague sense that your daily time is is limited. You feel overwhelmed by things. Then you become a parent, and it's not that necessarily anything that is. It's not necessarily anything that isn't equally true for for non-parents. It's just that it's incredibly impossible to mm-hmm. ignore. Firstly, <laughs> the kind of a minimum of what half your discretionary time is is immediately eliminated. I think that probably depends on how people share the work of parenting, but that's a minimum. Um, and then secondly, that you know any attempt to sort of schedule your life and decide when it is that you're going to be <laughs> sleeping, when it is that you're going to be able to focus deeply on something, or uh, that isn't that isn't uh, you know that wasn't my son, um, or uh or or attend to him and his needs like all that is out the window that sense that you were sort of scheduling things and then carrying out the schedule which never actually really worked very well in hindsight (laughs) even prior to this just they just became for me sort of unignorable 
I think all of that it probably goes, uh, you know, at least twice for the experience of motherhood as father as as a fatherhood. But it's but it was still pretty intense for me and remains and remains so. Yeah. And yeah, to be clear, it's not that I regret it. It's that it's that um, you are you are sort of it's born in on you, not only how little control you have, but actually then how many of the best moments come from surrendering to that fact. Yes. Yeah. 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 We're both parents, so we we totally understand. <laughs> I'm on the kind uh, of the other side, though, where I have I'm starting right. to get my time back, and right. that's kind of amazing right. too. Okay, yeah, interesting. yeah. Right. I'm I'm in. We still we have a toddler. We have a three year old. Right. So right. I'm I'm right where you are. Our son is six, so I'm. It's okay. still, you know, it's a it's an interesting moment, but actually, uh, to say that I have uh, acres of discretionary time would be inaccurate. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So this podcast, the theme of our podcast is exploring where people find connection, um, especially people who have different belief systems. And the, you know, in the work that you create, you pull on such different wisdom traditions. And I'm curious, or we're curious, um, if you could talk to us about whether or not you come from any specific belief system, um, and maybe what your background was as far as a spiritual practice. Yeah, sure. I feel like a sort of terrible hodgepodge though i think that's probably true for for very many people um to the extent that i was raised religiously which is very limited extent i was i was raised as a quaker so um and certainly uh, certainly in the uk anyway quakerism is that corner of uh, of christianity where being totally atheist is apparently completely acceptable so <laughs> it wasn't um it wasn't you know I, I i think that might that might accurately describe for example my uh my father's uh uh outlook um but i did sort of really um i think i was shaped quite a bit by some aspects of uh quakerism to do with the kind of spirit of equality and democracy of uh you know, it's not like everything hangs on the, the priest or the minister. Uh, it's kind of uh, everybody has a sort of equal equal role to play in it. And then I don't know if it is a spiritual, if it, it, how relevant it is spiritually that I, my Jewish on my father's side of the family, I think, I think that my paternal grandmother's experience of escaping the Nazis definitely... I, I now realize had sort of like through the generation impact on me in the sense that I think she probably had a extremely anxious parenting style that has yeah. come down to come down that is a part of the explanation for my sort of uh, spending large swathes of my life going uh, thinking that you know something nebulous and terrible was going to happen at, at any moment um so so there's that um honestly the amount of the, the thing that I have spent the most in the, the sort of spiritual tradition that I have spent the most active time doing anything practical related to uh is is Buddhism uh in, mm -hmm. in terms of uh you know meditation retreats and things like that I certainly wouldn't call myself a Buddhist um so yeah that's the that's the hodgepodge um the Jewish Buddhist thing is is not even surprising. That's like that's like you know that's a hugely popular intersection <laughs> of of faiths. But I guess the Quaker bit is is slightly less. Uh, slightly but even less. the Quakers, 
right in their practice, there is a lot of waiting and silence and listening in that, like in the, in a Quaker meeting, right? Yeah. People, no. there's no like schedule. You're not right. Here. No, it is a, it is a challenge to, you know, if you want things to unfold on a specific timetable, well, that makes you feel safe and secure. It's a, it is a bit of a, it is a bit of a challenge to that. Um, yeah, I think there are interesting, maybe this is a, a, a detour, but I think there's some interesting downsides to that sort of, sort of non-organized. I know that I think the majority of Quakers on, on a global level actually do do programmed worship, but I'm talking mm -hmm. about the tradition in the UK, same as the East Coast, I think, in a way as the, as the US, where it's very unprogrammed. Um, you know, there are downsides to that, which is that when you remove the structures from things, it's not always just that everyone has a equal say but just the people with the biggest egos yes run, who run are the show who are willing to <laughs> right. willing to say the spirit is moving in them and yeah exactly yeah, exactly. yes so yeah. it's just strange it would always be in the same handful yeah. of people right <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> well in that in that vein um we're curious who have been your uh her, who've been your formative teachers whether that's those are spiritual teachers or just intellectual teachers, um, yeah, who do you kind of count as sitting around the table of your thinking? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, and I'm always stumble a bit on that word because you know, large by and large, figures who you know died a long time before I was uh, yeah. before I was born. Although not not always, actually, I suppose some of the some of the influences that immediately spring to mind there i mean carl jung maybe uh obviously in some ways but that sort of that that perspective on psychology and psychotherapy that does straddle spiritual and secular um mm. uh worlds in quite an important way i think um I've been really uh, influenced by the work of a Jungian uh, psychotherapist called James Hollis, um, uh, who I've been fortunate enough to get to uh, meet and talk with since uh, since discovering his work. And there's an interview between me and him included in the paperback edition of my book that you just mentioned. So um, that's a big uh, privilege. Uh, I think uh, I've been really into reading stuff by uh, Dogen, the founder of the uh soto zen uh tradition i think who had uh some sort of seems to have had some ideas about the nature of time and our experience of time that uh you know took me writing my whole book to just begin to maybe glimpse and then i discovered his work and it's like oh yes it was all it was all here expressed in kind of extraordinarily uh vivid terms um so there's a few, you know, the reason, part of the reason I find this uh, difficult to answer is that like, I couldn't, I could list 50 people. I'm not yeah, going to, don't yeah, worry. You've yeah. got, uh, but it, they don't, they often don't seem for me to sort of um, distill down into like, it's the four or five people who are, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I, I seem to have just ended up being a sort of very, very eclectic in the way that I draw on mm -hmm. things and people. So um, they're almost like, too many to mention and not that many who form the sort of pantheon of three or four i guess yeah so just it, read read the book and and 
we can see all those people kind of <laughs> those in there. Yeah. 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 Right. 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 And I think it's interesting too. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you, you probably don't recall this. I'm sure you get fan mail all the time, but um, when I read your book the first time, and this was probably about a year ago, I, I sent you an email and you replied because you're very gracious, which is also why you're here right now. <laughs> um, but I just said that like, that your this book is, is like, is the antidote to the modern culture as we're experiencing it. And is is just a voice that I think that we need in every generation to be reminded of. And I'm sure a lot of the, these, the teachers that you have had are the, are those voices from the past that we're trying to remind people, Hey guys, slow down. Like this, this is it. This is here. You're, it's here and now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's sort of, it's really true that it is reminding uh, rather than like coming up with some new thought. And so really when I think about the list of people who, who've influenced me it's as much a form of expression or a way of writing uh that that just happens to for whatever reason you know cause me to see the thing that that they're pointing that they're pointing to and that also leads to the strange other experience of kind of reading people's work who you know has had a huge effect on other people and, and not really resonating with oneself and it's just some very often i think it's some very subtle stylistic thing you know so yeah, it's been amazing, amazing uh, hearing from people in response to my book who clearly on some level, you know, experience these things like me. And so my putting it into those words has been uh, has been powerful for them. There's a really amazing like people say to me like you know that they're that they're grateful to realize it wasn't just them, but that's an experience I have too, right? It's like <laughs> the experience of realizing you weren't quite such a lone freak yeah. as you may have uh, as you may have imagined and in a way that's all that's where the therapy is right it's not yeah. in like and now do this or follow this technique yeah. it's just like know that uh, we are uh, all in the same slightly absurd boat speaking of that um as far as reception to the book where i'm curious if there are are common things that people say to you or um if there are strings in our collective unconscious that have been plucked like what are those those themes that come up for people when they reach out to you yeah it's an interesting question some of this will get a bit mixed up with responses to my newsletter where i explore some related themes i don't keep those sort of clear in my mind but i mean one thing that's really always fascinating to me although i totally resonate with it i see why it happens but is is the sense that uh that people reading what I've written feel that they have some form of permission as a result of reading it to, you know, acknowledge that they're overwhelmed or acknowledge that the thing they've been trying to do is impossible or that, you know, it would be a totally valid, meaningful use of their life were they to do, you know, three of the 12 things that they think they have to spend their lives on. And there's something odd about that, right? It's like, I'm not anybody to give permission. This is like, you know, some random British guy like it's not it's not <laughs> like being given permission by your boss or your parents or something mm -hmm. like that and I think maybe really that that idea of that again that that notion of permission it's not really about authority it's more about um finding that there's somebody else you know expressing the way that you experience things and therefore feeling that you don't that it wouldn't be sort of going out on a limb to to have those thoughts or to, to live in that way so I'm always really struck by that 
And then also whenever I write about the sense of kind of, this is this feels quite sort of personal and between me and my therapist kind of material, but whenever I write about um, the sense of being sort of crushed by a feeling of obligation in life, right? The feeling of like all these things that you that you have to do just to count as a sort of minimally adequate person and have had the right to exist that day. You know, whenever I sort of go slightly out in that direction, thinking like, oh, no, I'm going to, ex finally, this is the newsletter where I'm going to expose myself as, uh, you know, just having very weird issues that nobody else has. It's like, that's when there's a huge outpouring of like, yes, the, the sense that of sort of, the sense of needing to do a lot more things just to get to this sort of baseline sense of adequacy. And that is an idea that that's where I get into, that's where my sort of um, Christian curious side uh, in, because that is obviously where the sort of ideas about uh, grace um, make a very sort of powerful intervention. The idea that one is sort of already enough and doesn't necessarily need to uh, find a better productivity system in order to reach the level of, of being enough. I feel like Kelly will have a good follow-up to that that <laughs> second theme. I have I have a story I want to tell you about the first theme that you just touched on, which is the permission structure. So I um I I seriously have bought like two dozen copies of the, of your book and I've just like <laughs> handed out to the people I care about. And um a friend of I'm mine not the, grateful not the... for that. And I don't I don't even have like an affiliate system, right? You know? <laughs> Uh, um, it, it's, I, I just think it's just, it's one, it's one of those books that's so, it's so wise and it's so accessible and it's, it, it, it packs so much power in such like for being such a, a short volume, which I think for a lot of people, you give them this enormous book and they're like, Oh God, I'm so overwhelmed. I could never even, you know, and they're like, okay, I could read this. And but the story, <laughs> the story, um, so a friend of mine had taken a sabbatical for work and she's not sure if she's going to go back. And I was like, so what, what prompted that? And she's like, well, you gave me that book. <laughs> I, I don't want to say I've got thousands of stories like this, but I, I, I have, I know of at least two other people like either known to me or to a friend who of mine who seem to have changed their employment situation as a result of the book. And I'm always like, so I hope it works out. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> there you go. She's a, she's fine. She's in a situation that it's it was it was a it was a good thing. Awesome. To, a so new adventure. So, if I could get my husband to slow down just for like a couple hours to read your book, just you know, <laughs> I think it would change his situation too. But I think I think we're we're on that we're on that train until it ends. <laughs> um, in terms of. Uh, yeah, the beautiful comment you just made about grace and that, you know, we are enough and that we're, we already exist in the, in that space of, mm -hmm. of grace. Um, one of the things that we found really exciting was when Aaron emailed you and you, one of your connection points to, to us was that we had already interviewed Belden Lane and that you liked, um, that you resonated with his work. And I just yeah. wondered if, if you could share a little bit about kind of your experience reading him. I'm going to be honest and say that it was a long time ago. Yeah. I came to that book through one of David Brooks's books where it's okay. quoted yeah. repeatedly. So I don't know how many of the thoughts that I have about the experience of being in wild nature and, mm. and, and feeling, uh, sort of, uh, feeling something that is very spiritual in that context comes from when I read 
that book or when I read David Brooks riffing on that yeah. book or just yeah. from <laughs> my just from my experiences we live now in um not right now I'm not kind of I'm, I'm talking to you from the U.S. but we live now in the North York Moors which is a sort of a national park in the north of England in Britain the national park is a different designation so lots of people live in them um uh and there are no bears mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um but uh yeah i mean not only is it a landscape dotted with the sort of monuments to early christianity but but you know that there is that is the context in which it is easiest to feel in some kind of conversation with nature reality all the people who have been in those places for centuries before you but uh to say that uh i'm getting that from Elden Lane or from any specific sources sort of slightly lost in the mists of time yeah well it's good to know that I didn't realize he was uh uh so referenced in Brooks's book so that'll be something to look forward to yeah no that was my way in I think it must have been the second mountain but it might have been the road to character I think it was the second mountain where he uh, where where I was introduced to, to that book yeah well one one question that we I did not touch on earlier. And this was sort of like, you know, probing as you were growing up, but we were curious about what you were taught about time growing up, if you were taught anything or what you observed, what the culture was in your, you know, household growing up. Yeah. This is where I always feel a, a little bit uh, like I'm, I'm being a bad son because my parents are very much alive and I love them to bits. And I think I was, I think I was, I had an absolutely wonderful childhood. I do think I I, I internalized some pretty anxiety-inducing aspects to time about time. I think um, you know I write about this a bit in the book, so it's already out there. Um, <laughs> I think the I definitely uh, grew up in a context where there was a lot of um, uh, a lot of emphasis was placed on sort of having things planned out and getting your ducks in a row and leaving enough time to get to places and I joke in the book that there's a there's a, well there is a real onion story uh with a headline dad suggests arriving at airport 14 hours <laughs> um, which is which is I I joke is my uh my upbringing it wasn't 14 hours but that kind of thing um and actually I think you can make some fa- fairly straightforward uh connections between that and my grandmother's experience uh uh leaving nazi germany but but the but the general idea was it is definitely this one that like it's a good thing to try to get a handle on what's coming and when you're going to do what and make sure that things aren't going to go uh awry and and you know as i've since sort of figured out at least somewhat um uh this is a sort of it's a fool's errand, right? I mean, it's not that it's not that some element of planning your uh, trip or something is is isn't sensible. Of course, it is. But like that kind of emotional investment in the idea that you know what's coming down the pike and you've got it all under control. Like either it doesn't go that way, and you're more sort of thrown by the fact that it doesn't go that way, or it does go that way, but but then you've just got the next bit of the future to to be trying to bring under your control right never it never ends until one day i guess it does end but you know it's it's not um it it, it's a quest for a kind of 
reassurance that um, that you can't ever reach. Um, and then I think the other thing that I sort of learned as one learns if you sort of are grow up to be a sort of good student and you know study when you should and you get good results as a result of that you know it's very much conditioned into you that like using your time wisely for future goals is uh, is an important thing again it is and maybe there are some people who could do with more of that message inside them but i in general i've had to sort of unlearn it a bit <laughs> to be able to mm. contemplate finding satisfaction in the moment rather than uh, always just over the next uh, over the next hill that's that's you you as well does that resonate yeah it, it does it Good. does yeah so one of one of my teachers uh you quote in the first uh like maybe 15 pages of the book which i was really excited about uh you, richard Rohr. oh right yeah so yep. Uh, I just finished a, a program with him, a two-year program with him, and you quote oh, wow. him a couple times in the book. But one yeah. of the things on our first day of class that he said, which I feel like is highly relatable to this book, is he said, the greatest ally of God is reality. It's the primary voice of God. Mm. And I that was just, of the two years, like that's one of the things I just, you know, held on to. Yeah. And um and just that, you know, the opposite of reality is this kind of distractible state, this distracted state that we live in, mm -hmm. either of, you know, we distract ourselves with pleasure or we distract ourselves with pain. And I think you even talk about that, like the addiction we have to our anxiety too, and you know, in our culture. And then right. for me in in the book. Your this, I'm going to read. Um, is it okay if I read you to you? This quote about no, patience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you say patience becomes a form of power in a world geared for hurry, the capacity to resist the urge to hurry, to allow things to take the time they take is a way to gain purchase on the world, to do the work that counts and to derive satisfaction from the doing itself instead of deferring all your fulfillment for the future. And I can't tell you how many times I've used that quote. I, I, I work as a spiritual director, so I have right. clients and I have quoted that to so many people. Um, just this idea that in order to live in reality, we just have to be patient with what is right. 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 Um, yeah. So that just, to me, uh, that idea of that equanimous state. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm curious, you know, and I know you said it's it's about knowing, like, it's about identifying with each other and going, oh, mm -hmm. you're in that boat too, I'm in that yep. boat. But I wonder if there are any practices that you use to cultivate that sense of patience and looking at things as they are. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'm constantly experimenting with 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 different ones, um, and I can sort of answer that question on any level from kind of, you know, the shock tactic that I write about doing in the book, where I went to look at a single painting in the Harvard yes. Art Museums for three <laughs> for three unbroken hours. We can definitely talk about that. That's kind of like you want to make yourself 
learn the discomfort of not uh, moving fast. That's, uh, but also the great benefits of, uh, uh, of, of, of slowing down like that. That's a, that's a great one. I would say that one of the key things just in my sort of day-to-day life and especially my work life is is really trying to let myself fall back down into kind of a sequential doing one thing at a time kind of approach. Um, It was a big deal for me when I realized that the thing that stops me focusing on one thing at a time is not it's not really best described as like, oh, the temptations of distraction and social media or something like that. It's much better described as like the anxiety that comes from making all the other ones wait, mm. basically. So yeah. like if you have 10 projects, all of which feel like they're incredibly urgent mm-hmm. and that you're, you're sort of, you know, it's a bad situation if you don't get them all done in a given amount of time. Um, the truth is obviously that... Uh, uh the only way to or the best way to get through as many as you can in the time available is is one after another the truth is that if you've got enough time to do one of them then one is better than zero and mm. and uh, you know one one thing done in reality is better than 20 things kind of um mm. sort of forced into your schedule on a level of fantasy and then never actually uh implemented so that's sort of it's not even going slow. That's the funny thing, right? It's just going at the speed that the time speed that things take to yeah. to do. And falling in it's an uncomfortable mindset, I always find, I still find to sort of return to, but the discomfort doesn't last. And that knowing that, you know, you know, today I'm gonna do this, try to do this and this and this. That's all. That's it. And it's mm-hmm. totally inadequate if the standard of adequacy is all the things that I feel I have to do, but but that just doesn't work, right? That's just that that leads to the opposite result. I just wrote a few days ago now a, a newsletter about an experiment where sort of feeling returning to overwhelm and wanting to get away from that feeling again and, and or move through it. I I experimented with sort of really radically limiting the number of hours I was doing any work yeah. in a day. Um and you know, all sorts of caveats. Lots of people are not in the position to experiment in that way. It's great, for, good fortune that I can, but but it's not fun, right? If you feel overwhelmed with things, making yourself only do four hours of them and then spend the rest of your free time, discretionary time, like going for walks or swimming, like doesn't feel like feels like you're doing something illicit, right? Um, <laughs> but what it's actually doing, I believe, is training that sort of muscle that says, "I am limited. I am finite." The best thing I can do is sort of step fully into that and do a few things instead of constantly sort of skating over the top of them in an attempt to mm. to to get to the point. It's all about control, right? It's like it's like yeah. seeking seeking the feeling. Well, I think we will generally um, go a very very long way to in in service of that feeling of being in control, even if it's obviously totally detrimental to things like you know feeling happy or mm. uh, being not being a jerk to other people or or anything else yeah i've started this summer i i a friend of mine who is of a different of a um an older generation than i mm. said to me once um i only do three things a day and i was like that is insane 
what are you talking? Like, how can you only do three <laughs> things a day? But now the summer and I'm about a year, a month, about a year from retirement. And uh, so I'm starting to kind of try to move into that space. So I've, this summer I've tried just doing three things a day and what I, and so it might be three hours or it might be six hours, but right. only three things on my calendar. And yeah. then I, cause I find if I have that fourth thing, yeah. I'm like resentful of that fourth thing when it comes. <laughs> right, right? Right, right. And yeah, I'm just yeah. like, I, I want to, I, I want to cancel. But yeah. if, but if that fourth thing comes up spontaneously and I have the energy, then I can say yes to it. Yeah. Yeah. But if it's on there, if it's on my calendar, then I'm like, I'm yeah. just all day, like regretting it's there. Yeah. 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 No, I know exactly what you mean. That capacity to sort of, even if it was something you really wanted to do or you decided yeah. to do yourself, right? Um, yeah. One ends up really hating one's oppressor, even when that's yourself, right? Yeah. That's, the, that's the part of it that always seems. Uh, and again, yes, it's because you wanted to be in, you wanted a certain kind of control over your time and you took it away from yourself by, mm -hmm. uh, by putting it in the end. That's really interesting. That kind of prompts for me. Um, one of the things that I have probably quote to other people the most about the book or when I'm trying to describe it to other people is um, that concept of the joy of missing out rather than right, the right. fear of missing out. And because as you say, it's the fact that we have a limited time and, and that we're choosing to do certain things um, and like neglect the things that are less important mm -hmm. that bestows meeting on those things that we do choose. Right. And, um, and then, you know, makes us more attentive to those things that we are choosing, or hopefully makes us more attentive to those things that we are choosing. So I guess for you, if you, as observing that as a practice in your own life, are there things that you're able to see more clearly when like using that practice or like maybe are there things that you could see now that you couldn't see before? Yeah. I mean, I think the right way to describe my day-to-day -day experience of this stuff is that I fall, you know, I fall back into sort of the anxious controlly mindset fairly frequently, but that I'm, it's much quicker than it used to be that I can see where I'm going and sort of see through it a little bit and sort of uh, not go down that, that rabbit hole. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, I guess that I've tended to write and talk about the joy of missing out in the context of choosing among good things like fun experiences, right? So it's like the fear of missing out is this notion that like there are great experiences happening somewhere or important, you know, things that you could be a part of, or, uh, I don't know, people you could be dating, uh, and, <laughs> and it's, and it's, and it, and you want to try to implicit in the concept of fear, I guess, is this idea that you want to rule out, rule that out from, from happening. It's like, if you're not careful, you might miss out on things. Mm. And so my sort of first response to that is always that, you know, moments contemplation of the relationship between our finitude and the infinite variety of experiences on offer is such that, you know, missing out is inevitable it's not something to be feared it's something to be seen as inevitable and that it's happening anyway right so you can you can sort of slip into this joy of missing out mindset or not either way you know you're still making tough choices and, and doing one thing with with a period of time when you could have been doing one of another you know myriad things and so 
yeah, I think what I get to sort of it, one thing that I notice when I can be in that mindset is firstly the things that I find fulfilling are not the things that I necessarily tell myself I find fulfilling so one thing that often tends to happen in this way is that you're going to choose something seemingly more mundane than something else right you're going to uh you know deny yourself some uh potentially sort of exciting seeming night out somewhere because you're going to stay home and do the things that come with family life and raising kids and and so you can be uh, understanding that this is what's going on in terms of sacrificing one, lots of things for something else seems to me to give some extra depth to that to that seemingly mundane experience and then i think if you follow that thought all the way you might conclude that like no experience is mundane right in the sense that we tend to mean it that that it's almost this is a radical way of putting it but like it's almost like it doesn't matter exactly what mm. you're doing with your time uh what matters is that you understand that you could have been doing lots of other things and you're doing this one and you're here for this one um and I think, you know, to push that point to its limit, there is, a, and I write about this a bit in the book as well, right? I think even there's even an argument that sort of actively physically painful experiences are less agonizing to the extent that one's full attention can be, can be held on them. One of the, the things that I have, have written a lot about and, and studied um, quite a bit is... Um, the mental health crisis for for young people, and th I think that that this that idea, I, I kind of wonder if you've thought about um, how that kind of fear of missing out plays into to that that the relationship we have to social media and like the explosion of what it's of seemingly endless possibilities mm -hmm. does for us as human beings. Um, I'm just kind of curious about your. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'm, I'd I'd like to know your thoughts, but it, yes, I really I really do think it's like it's all part of the same thing. I think something that interests me a lot is the, specifically the kind of phenomenology of the feeling of being uh, in digital spaces. That this sense that you have, or that I have anyway, of it's very easy to see how you would feel that the limitations limitations don't apply, right, in all sorts of different ways, and you get this in sort of the disinhibition of people being truly obnoxious online that's one form of it but also just that notion that like it doesn't seem right that there ought to be any limitations to what what you can do where you can go who you can present yourself as being all the rest of it and so it's it, i've got to believe that that sort of makes it harder to uh have to encounter the different ways in which uh you know material reality does limit us so the uh, example i always give i don't know if there's really any research into this but it's got to be the case i just can't believe it isn't the case that um you know people's level of impatience at things like queuing or traffic jams mm -hmm. is is ramped up when the rest of the time they're able to spend their life in the sort of slightly with this mm -hmm. sort of godlike phenomenology of just sort of <laughs> uh moving uh liquidly through through um cyberspace so I think that's a, I'm sure that that has, has something to, to do with this. Obviously, then there's just, and maybe this speaks to your interest, you tell me, but like the, the, 
the algorithmic side of this, the fact that the fact that we have this sense that we're sort of encountering a different dimension of reality, but actually it's it's a completely manipulated reality. Mm -hmm. It's designed to make you feel worse FOMO. It's designed mm -hmm. to make you feel have you know uh, worse thoughts about your social acceptability or your body image or or whatever it might be. It's not it's not just that you happened to find some people living more exciting, glamorous lives or uh, looking more attractive than you or whatever it is it's that it's that well originally it was that those specific people were highlighted for your to come into your feed and and you know now with ai they won't even be real people so. yeah <laughs> right <clears throat> i know yeah uh, and and people who are not real have far fewer limits on yeah. what they can be and uh, yeah. what they can look like and, and yeah the filters what they and can, what, right yeah right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that that is, um, it's certainly at play. I mean, I think the patience piece is, is a muscle, right? If you don't, if you're not accustomed to having to have patience, then mm -hmm. why would you all of a sudden have that ability in these other environments? So we're not necessarily like helping anybody cultivate those skills, the more time that we spend in these spaces that um, everything feels very immediate. And, and yeah, I mean, the I think the Facebook files, the um, information that was released by Francis Haugen pretty much sums it up that, yes, it it is algorithmically designed to make you feel FOMO and to mm -hmm. make you feel bad about themselves. And they know that when they turn those dials just a little bit, that um, it keeps people on the platform longer, even if it's it's bad for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the I, I, I guess I don't know the details of the Facebook files, but I think that Part of the scariness here is that it's just sort of baked into the logic of these organizations, right? There may also be kind of nefarious things going on and people being aware of ethical infractions they ought to have acted upon. But it's it's also just like, yeah, if you make attention the commodity, then mm -hmm. uh, there's going to be a sort of relentless extracting of people's attention, yeah, regardless yeah. of whether it what they really want. Yeah, I have a I have an anecdote. Uh to uh to add to this so i've been teaching high school theater for the last 25 years all right and um so i do an exercise where i usually start the year and i'm having kids just walk around the room and i just say you know just walk around the room and usually they're kind of just walking you know in a circle kind of at the same pace you know in the same direction and i give them a cue and I just say I want you to do something to engage yourself in this activity of walking around and in the last maybe five years um, whenever I say that whoever has their phone in their back pocket mm -hmm. like all of a sudden they'll take their phones out and so for them to engage themselves in the act of walking means to, to distract themselves with their phone <laughs> right right yeah rather than you know make a choice physically that actually engages them mm -hmm. yeah which is wow. just yeah yeah the yeah, there was there was another exercise i do that reminded me of um in the book when you when you go and uh look at the picture for three hours the painting i do an exercise where i each kid has a chair and I give them 45 minutes and they have to find as many different ways of sitting in that chair as they can. 
it, and they have 45 minutes. And so the, it's like, you know, they're like, how many different ways can I say it? But they, so eventually. <laughs> right. you, mean, you mean they, they, they have to do it for 45 minutes, right? They have to they do it for 45 minutes. less than 45 minutes. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So they, you know, they can change the chair and they don't have to sit on it. Like sit is a pretty loose term. You know, yeah. They can stand on it and different, different things, but it's, it, it's very interesting to see and it's active. So for them, like they could never sit and look at a painting for three hours. Like they right. just couldn't do right. it. But because they're physically involved in the process that, you know, this extended activity, they seem to yeah. get to that it, same kind of point. Yeah. Right. And it stimulates a kind of new kind of creativity because yeah. is the, the option of walking away from it is, is removed. I guess. Yeah. 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 It's fun. Do you have a question, Kelly? I've got one. If um, I, you want me to go? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just curious. Um, how has writing, uh, writing this book and the reception to this book, um, changed your life, and also like changed your relationship to time? And now you have people like us fangirls, to, you know, asking you to <laughs> be on podcasts and what. I mean, yeah, I think it. Uh, it's it feels like a very sort of um, uh, humdrum response to that great question but actually yeah it's just like part of what i'm getting at in the book is 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 how we negotiate the fact that there are sort of more demands more potential opportunities more things that would be fun to do more things that feels important uh to do from an on ethical grounds whatever it is than we can get our arms around and yeah one of the one of the results of the sort of surprising success to me anyway of this book has been that it just sort of takes all those issues and turns them up and not so mm. like I've got a whole section in the book on like finding peace with having too much email and then I was mm. like okay I didn't really know what too much email meant before, <laughs> before that um and you know uh, as again the specific I mean the specific way in which something going right or two things one is the way that something going right can be a source of a kind of stress because you mm. feel like to me anyway I'm always like well something I ought to be doing to respond mm -hmm. to this to this fact right or some opportunity I ought to be seizing like so it's also just a ridiculous and classic example of like finding the non finding the cloud in the silver lining or, or whatever um but also then uh the way in which this problem of of finitude and of needing to sort of reconcile ourselves to our limitations it doesn't go away with to the extent that things you do are successful it gets worse to the extent that things you do are successful because you know the proportion of opportunities coming one's way uh, that are good and exciting increases a little bit um i'm in this persistent strange state right of being sort of having a very tortured relationship with email i'm finding ways around this and i think i've <laughs> reached i think i've reached a certain level of equanimity but and yet the the vast overwhelming majority of the emails that are the cause of this are just lovely and wonderful and they're either just ego boosting or they're much more than that they're people you know sharing really sort of personal mm. stories or recommending fascinating readings that i had not encountered yet so it's incredibly useful to hear from them and i i love all of this stuff and I hate that I 
can't get my arms around it. So all these challenges are sort of, you know, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, um, yeah, they come back on a on a new on a new level. Um, but I do know a bit more than I did, uh, having sort of thought my way through these things and and tried to sort of live into them a bit. So I am uh, I am a bit more reconciled to the fact that I'm only going to be able to do a, a few of the things that one could theoretically do. On that note, I have a Jesus. I, I also have to have my Jesus moment in the podcast. So this is my Jesus. I was going to say, I thought there might be more of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I heard a sermon once that, uh, that, that kind of had the same effect on me as Aaron's friend who quit her job after she read your book. Um, and it was a sermon about Jesus calling people or when he was calling the disciples and telling them, you know, drop your nets, follow me. And the disciples like, uh, you know, I got to bury my father. And then mm -hmm. everyone's like, you know, I, like, I got to go stick about in my family. You know, I, well, I got to do this. And they all had these really good things. And, and Jesus is like, no, you can't do it. Just mm -hmm. come with me, just drop it. Come with me. And, you know, looking at that, you're like, Jesus is a jerk. I mean, pretty <laughs> jerky here to like demand this of people, right. like, like burying your father is a important thing. And, uh, and what this sermon said, which I had never heard this passage described this way is that uh, there are all kinds of good things in our lives, but we only have the capacity for so much. And sometimes mm -hmm. we have to let go of good things yeah. in order to take on something new. Right. And that it isn't a judgment against the thing you're not doing. Right. Do the thing that you do do. Right. Yeah. 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 And and I think in the sermon, it was like, there's some, there might be something better and it might not even be. And I think kind of what you say is it might not even be better. It just might right. be the thing that you need to do now. <laughs> right. Right. The thing that is appropriate to this specific moment. Yeah. 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 Had, had some wise ideas that. Uh, right. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. The, the, the other, the other kind of, this is kind of a totally not Jesus moment, but uh, the other piece there's a theater director named Anne Bogart and she writes a, a book on called just on directing and the first thing she says is directing is a violent act and this is kind of the opposite of Jesus but the same right. story and she says because as a director when you decide the chair is going to go here and is going to face this way mm -hmm. you negate all other options yeah. for where yeah. that chair can be yeah. And so that it's it's almost an act of violence to make a decision. Yeah. Which I think is that's really interesting. And that what that reminds me of is how frequently people who've read what there are people who anyone who's really into improvisation becomes like apparently becomes like a huge evangelist for improvisation. So I've never really I've not been to improv classes or anything like that. But I've many times people are like yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you should really try improvisation because it all goes to the heart of this stuff. So that's yeah. maybe the flip yeah. side of what we're talking about there. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Aaron, do all you right. want to move to yeah. our last question? Yeah, well, we've got one more question for you, and we're I'm looking sure. at the time, so and we're going to land the plane. Be respectful of your time, but oh, we're you. we're wondering um, what you're working on now, what your next project is going to be. What uh, is yeah, I'm I'm working on a, a book that has a working title of uh, Meditations for Mortals, um, uh, mm -hmm. which is intended to sort of 
take some of these ideas and this broad worldview of sort of embracing finitude and all the all the sort of freedom that comes from that and 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 fulfillment and sort of they're meant to be sort of short reflections they play off a lot of the quotations from various sources that I've been kind of deluged with by readers since the book came out so it's an mm. attempt to sort of be in conversation with uh that stuff it's still taking shape but I think that there's something really powerful about I guess in religion these kinds of things are called things like devotionals right it's this mm -hmm. idea that there's some there's some benefit in sort of being able to enfold this kind of way of thinking and being into your daily life it's not intended as a sequel or for people who've only read my other books or anything like that but it did partly come from this this response from some people of like okay I I get the shift in perspective but like now what how do I implement it and I think mm -hmm. on some level that's the wrong question the answer the, the question is something like how do you sort of spend more more time with it letting mm -hmm. it sink into your yeah. letting it sink into your skin that under your skin that's that's the only way I've ever found to sort of deepen this kind of uh, understanding well I so appreciate how you come at things. And I, I think I have a better understanding now, having talked to you, that you have such an eclectic background and eclectic things that you're pulling from wisdom-wise. Um, when I listened to your your interview with Krista Tippett, that was the first time I had heard you. Heard oh, you. Right. And um, and I was so intrigued. And I was like, I like. I so like I I'm not usually so obsessed with like what is somebody's belief system or where is somebody coming from but I was so uh curious that I kept I would listen to more than you know obviously bought the book and read it um but there is there is just this really great uh non-judgmental open stance I think in your work that allows for people like me and Aaron to both find such wisdom and uh, such, you know, instruction for our lives. So we really appreciate well, that. I'm really flattered to say that that is what I'm sort of aspiring to. So it's lovely if that's, uh, if that's what um, comes across. Yes, I don't know what my belief system is. <laughs> and it seems to be constantly changing. But, um, but I'm kind of fine with that. Yeah, yeah. we were, yeah. we were just talking this morning, we were like, maybe one of the things we should ask ourselves is just like, what do I believe today? Yeah, because mm -hmm. every day is a little bit different. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. We've really thank enjoyed you. this. Really, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. We want to thank our guest, Oliver Berkman, for sharing his thoughts, his wisdom, and his time with us. We also thank our listeners for joining us for this episode. We hope you took away as much as we have. If you have any show suggestions, questions, or thoughts on the show, feel free to write us at atheist at stlpodcast.com. Atheist is produced by Justin Sywell and Trend Media STL. You can follow us and other great podcasts on Instagram at stlpodcasts. Kelly and I both have substacks that you should check out. The links can be found in the episode description. That's where you'll also find links to Oliver Berkman's website and some other things we think you'll find interesting. Thank you for listening and keep looking for connection.